You're listening to episode number 20 of the Boys Built Better podcast. Today, we're talking about teaching children consent. Thanks so much for listening. We are talking about teaching your children consent today, starting at a very young age, making it part of the conversation of growing up. So no matter what age your children are, stay tuned. There's a lot of great information. I'm interviewing Hannah Butler and Brett Naylor, who are both prevention education coordinators at the Saba Center, which is the Sexual Assault Victim Advocate Center here in my county. And it's all part of our effort to get some information out there um, as April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And it's just a topic that I feel like I want to talk to my boys about. And there's some great how-to information in here. So let's cut on over to the episode. Oh, as a side note, there's some really great related episodes. Um, This is episode number 20. Episode 19 is understanding assault and consent and harassment. And that's great information getting into this episode. And a while back, I also did an episode on how to talk to your kids about sex. And that would also be a great listen if this is content that you're really into and you haven't heard that yet. And I will link to both of those in the show notes, but let's cut on over. Hi guys. How are you? I'm really great. How are you, Jessica? Good, good. Good. Now, Hannah, you've been on the show before, uh, but for listeners who may not have heard that episode, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am one of the prevention education coordinators here at Sava Center. Um, Been here for over six months now, I think. Um, Really loving it so far. I graduated from Luther College with a degree in psychology and communication studies. Um, It was there in college where I also became really passionate about um, sexual assault awareness, um, helped sort of kickstart the Norse Against Sexual Assault, which is sort of a student-teacher um, coalition that did a lot of events for Sexual Assault Awareness Month and things there. So that was fun. <laughs> and Brett. Yeah, so my name is Brett Naylor. I'm the other prevention education coordinator here at Sava. I've kind of been with Sava for about a year and a half, but as far as like my actual position, it's been around six months, same as Hannah. Um, I have a background. Um, I got my bachelor's degree from CSU in human development and family studies. So I work in a ton with kids. I love the kiddos, talking to them and, and teaching them all the good things that they need to know. And I think, you know, as a topic of um, sexual violence, it's something that, you know, um, they don't get a lot. And so I think it's a really cool opportunity for me to kind of um, make a change in the world with the next generation. So cool. And this is, this show is sort of the second in what's going to be three episodes around sexual violence and consent and boys in the world of me too. Um, our previous episode with Hannah was about just understanding the topic better. So everybody kind of is starting on the same footing. And today we're going to be talking about how to teach consent to children. Um, I think it's a topic that more and more parents are becoming aware of and, and want to have, uh, things to say to their kids or want to know what to say or how to say it or when to start. And so we're going to get into all of that But before we do that, 
something that we were going to cover in the last episode, but it got dropped. And I want to make sure that we cover, especially when we're talking about teaching consent, is this idea of how a perpetrator is created. Um, so can we just talk a little bit about perpetrators and um, especially kind of this idea of like how likely you are to be raising a perpetrator, right? Like I do want to have some knowledge about just the statistics. Yeah, of course. So um, it's very unreasonable or it's not unreasonable, but reasonable that people, you know, obviously if they're raising children. They don't want um, to be raising a perpetrator. I think that's like a parent's worst nightmare. Right. Um, so to kind of get to the point of the question is that um, it is unlikely overall that you'd be raising a perpetrator. Um, but there are kind of two different kind of like distinct factors between uh, how we kind of look at perpetrators. Right. So there's one main um, when we think about perpetrators, that's the um, person who is taking power and control away from somebody it is someone who knows that like what they're doing is wrong and they want you know that to have power they want to feel good about what they're doing things like that and usually those people are people who um, perpetrate over and over again right um, and then there's a, a secondary kind of type of perpetrator where it's someone who um, hasn't been taught consent, hasn't been taught, you know, um, the importance of empathy and sympathy towards other human beings. And uh, it's just someone who doesn't kind of understand that, like, you know, I should ask, you know, should I kiss this person or should I or before, you know, I, I touch them or things like that. Um, and it's not necessarily that their intentions are to perpetrate and take power and control, but they would still perpetrate in that sense because they're not really taking and consider that other person's like autonomy. Right. Um, so overall, it's it's fairly unlikely, but, um, it still happens. Yeah. Hannah, do you have something to add? Um, yeah, I'll just chime in and I'll say, um, sort of, uh, reiterating what Brett said at the, the percentage, um, of perpetrators, like in our society, it's a very small percentage of people who are out there sort of perpetrating sexual violence. Um, but of those, they're sort of repeating that crime. Um, and I will also add, um, it sort of is related to our conversation last time. Um, I would say it's not just like individual parents who would be like raising or creating perpetrators. I would go to say um, that perpetrators are more created by our like culture overall. Like certainly a parent does have a role in, in raising that child and teaching that child things. Um, but I would say, I guess, yeah, what I'm trying to say is that it's that culture overall that's really teaching perpetrating behavior because it's those, you know, like stereotypes that we see and the lack of conversation as a whole that our society, you know, has um, that that's more likely to like teach that child those sort of perpetrating behaviors, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else to say about perpetrators before we kind of switch to talking about consent? Yeah. Um, so the kind of scary thing about perpetrators, uh, especially when it's, you know, your child who you're, you know, you don't want them to obviously perpetrate is that our society holds like these myths about perpetrators and what they're supposed to look like, what they're supposed to be. Um, cause I think, you know, when you watch, um, shows like, um, law and order special victims unit, you know, all those kind of drama shows, you see that the perpetrators are always people, you know, they're, they're people jumping out of bushes or alleyways, things like that. Um, but statistics show, especially for teenagers, um, that when 
when someone who is a teenager who is sexually assaulted, it's like 90% of the 90 plus percent of the time it's by someone that they know. Um, so that can be really scary. Um, it is also most of the time it's in a place that the victim is comfortable in. So whether it's their home, it's their, um, school, it's, it's a friend's home, places where they, they feel like they're trust because perpetrators use the, the knowledge that they know this person. They use the comfortable environment to, to perpetrate against someone else and using that trust, uh, which can be very scary. And, you know, it's, it's where you see when, you know, perpetrators do come forward or they don't, they get caught. Right. Um, you know, parents are like, Oh, you know, they, they would never do this. I know my son, I know my, my daughter, I, they, they would never do this. Um, because oftentimes they use that trust, right. They use the, the things like that. And it can be, and that's kind of the scary part and why, you know, parents are, are, um, hold on to those myths because they don't want to believe that their, their child might have perpetrated. Right. And so those are some kind of other kind of myths that we have about perpetration. So, so I guess overall what we're saying is like perpetrators are, um, yes, of course, like children are influenced by their parents, but overall our whole culture sort of goes to, um, maybe teach these myths, um, that allow people to sort of get away with perpetrating. And it's most likely going to be those people that we don't expect because we, we want to, you know, have that safety, um, of thinking that like we can tell exactly who those, like, I don't know, like creepy people are going to be right. who's going to perpetrate but it is you know like sometimes our children or family members or our peers like people that we know people that are seen as generally successful people in the world um it's not like people born with like an evil bone in their body and they're going out and you know being like serial rapists outside of bars or in dark alleyways the majority of sexual assaults um are not occurring because of that sort of perpetration it's occurring in that safety of the victim's home by the person that um that the victim knows and things like that so we really are talking about sort of like our children our boys are and and we'll also say that um statistically um, for female victims, when we're talking about perpetrators, it is 97% of the perpetrators um, that are male um, in that like male to female um, scenario. And then of male victims as well, it's also the majority of perpetrators um, are men. So when we talk about perpetrators, we're not saying that women cannot be, um, but it is a conversation that is largely focused on male perpetrators because that's just the majority of, of who it is. So it's an important conversation to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, you know, the fact that perpetrators are likely to be someone, you know, and I love that you included, I mean, it's hard to hear, but I love that you included like, oh yeah, your child, you know, like it could be, you know, that, that it is going to kind of be surprising to you who a perpetrator may be, which is great to t then talk about. Let's, let's talk about how we make our children more aware and talk about teaching consent so that we are not raising perpetrators. So let's switch gears. Um, just kind of just kick us off in general. How do you approach the subject of consent with kids? Yeah. So, um, the kind of first most important thing that we want to do is when we approach those conversations, being super open, honest, and then using appropriate, um, vocabulary, right? So whether you're talking about, um, sex and, and touching, you know, like, um, touching vaginas or penises or, you know, using that actual like, um, anatomy vocabulary, right. Um, that's really important. Um, and having, and if, you know, if you come off as, you know, talking to your child about these conversations, um, 
in a off-putting kind of way. Like if you show that you're really uncomfortable, off chances are that your child's probably not going to be very comfortable about it either, right? So I'm making sure you're, you're open and honest. And, you know, obviously if you have some kind of like withholdings of like, I'm not necessarily comfortable talking about it like 100%, you know, kind of dealing with that a little bit first because if you can't kind of like um, acknowledge those, it's going to kind of rub off on your child and maybe, you know, say like, oh, you should be uncomfortable about this too, kind of things like that. Um, and then there, are, then going from there, there are kind of two main ways we can kind of approach them. Either the one that's really obvious maybe is being direct. And, you know, that depends on your comfort level. Um, if you're really comfortable, you're just having your, grabbing your child and be like, let's have a chat about consent. And like, you know, this is what it looks like. You know, you need to ask, ask consent, you know, X, Y, Z, all those kind of things. Um, but a lot of times, you know, when we see parents and we talk to kiddos, um, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening a lot of the time. Um, because that can be intimidating, like having like a sit down conversation with your child about that. So there are some kind of like roundabout ways we can do that. Um, such as like, you know, if you go out to dinner with, um, one of your, your kiddos and say you have siblings and one kiddo sees that the other sibling ordered some like really nice looking fries and the kiddo's like, oh, I want some of those and they grab that from their plate. You can just be like, okay, well, you didn't ask to, to grab those fries first, right? And so that's a way to kind of bring about consent in a very like easy manner because you're talking about fries in that kind of case. And mm -hmm. then because you've already kind of like layered that background of like what consent is and like you should ask for it before you like take something of someone else's things like that you can then kind of like layer it up and then start moving on and talking about like kissing and making out and having sex and you know things like that yeah yeah I would say that it's like what you were talking about it's an ongoing conversation it can certainly start or lead to sort of that like let's sit down and have an explicit conversation about consent and sort of talk about it in the way that we talked about it last week but I would say that the conversation as a whole like ideally would just be throughout that child's upbringing like the parents are talking about when they're going out to eat like asking to share food like it's not just that one-time thing but just a continual like oh make sure you ask Jimmy if he wants a hug you know like as those little situations arise it's like this sort of constant um part of their of their childhood I guess um and then I also want to just like reiterate something really important that I think you said Brett which is when you have those conversations, especially the explicit ones, like showing that you are comfortable talking about it because it not only makes them like comfortable, well, hopefully makes that kid comfortable in the moment being like, oh, okay, like this is a normal conversation. I can have this conversation with mom or dad, but also will hopefully make them more comfortable coming back to the conversation on their own when they have questions. Because yeah, if you're talking about it in this like beat around the bush sort of way, not using the actual names of body parts, then it's going to make it that much harder for them to come back to it. Cause they'll be like, oh, this is something that's like weird to talk about or uncomfortable or like wrong more like secret to talk about. Um, and then also with like using the names of the body parts, that's super important, not only to just like show that comfort, but statistically it's been like proven that children who, um, know the names of their private body parts and say like 
can say vagina, penis, breast, things like that, they're less likely to become victims themselves because um, perpetrators who like know that the kid knows those words um, or hears the kid saying those words, um, they know that there's someone in their life that's talking to them about this. So it's less likely, less likely for them to get away with, you know, touching that kid inappropriately. Um, so it's really important that we teach those kids the words instead of saying like, wee wee or like I don't know other weird nicknames for it um which is I think so common um but yeah it can actually be it it can be a really negative thing in a child's life if we're not just able to like talk about it openly and then um just to add on top of that with the conversations I think it's also just super important that parents like emulate and practice setting examples of consent like whether whether you think your kids are watching you 100 percent of the time um they they are regardless of whether you're aware of it or not so just like practicing that on on your own and kind of like you know self-reflecting on like okay am i asking for consent here xyz um because they're gonna they're that's gonna rub off on them just to kind of end that point so and maybe family members too like i'm thinking like if your grandma or grandpa's uh visiting and say go give your grandpa a kiss right like that would be a that might be a time where you're teaching consent as well like Mm -hmm. having those adults in their life also say you know can i give you a kiss yeah absolutely right because when you and i i mean i've experienced it too you know going to like the family outings and they're like oh give give like you said give grandma a hug or something like that it, it kind of teaches them that like you know they they're not necessarily like in control of their body um and things like that so yeah it's very important to have that conversation and i have if you're somebody who hasn't listened to the show for a while, there is a super great episode about talking to your kids about sex, um, which I highly recommend listening to uh, just in terms of getting comfortable and when to approach that subject. And and that episode covers some of the same same things here. So I think that's great information. Um, And then the other thing I wanted to ask you is uh, I want to know what this looks like across different ages. Cause I can kind of already in my mind think, okay, when you're, child is little, you are teaching them the appropriate names for things. So can you talk about what teaching consent looks like when you're very young into elementary school and kind of on up? Yeah, of course. So, um, Oftentimes when we talk to parents about consent, they're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to my kid at an early age about consent because they have the preconceived notion that consent is only about like sex and they're uncomfortable talking to their kids about, you know, like when they're five, like this is sex, blah, blah, blah. Um, But we can have those conversations earlier that don't necessarily have to always involve sex. Right. So that's, you know at an early age, you know, um, when they're, um, young, you can, you know, teach them the names of their body parts, such as penis or vagina or nipple or things like that. So that they know what those are. Um, as well as, you know, teaching them about boundaries, right? Like, you know, we all have our personal bubbles. We have, you know, how comfortable are you if like someone sits like really close to you and you don't really know them kind of teaching them about those kind of like boundaries and how to communicate those. Like, I'm not really comfortable when you sit really close to me. Um, so I like you to kind of, you know, take a scoop away from me, like teaching them those kind of boundaries are a good way to kind of bring about of what consent is because then it kind of builds empathy like okay well how do you think they would feel if you did this or how do you feel right um and then bringing that conversation forward as they like progress through age like okay well um going to grandma's house you know you know the hug conversation again is like okay well do you want a hug and if if it's not then you know respecting that right so if you know they're like okay i don't want to hug grandma that doesn't mean that you know um 
that they're being selfish. They're not, you know, being unloving to their grandma. It's just that, that that's their, their body autonomy, right? And then as they, you know, older and older, you can kind of, you know, because we see um, starting like middle school, you know, kids are, are starting to become interested in relationships, right? So what does it mean to give a hug to like a friend versus like your grandma, things like that? What are the differences that maybe are like those dynamics kind of differ? And what, what are some like appropriateness areas and kind of things like that? Um, then talking about, you know, uh, bringing in like, oh, what does it mean to make out? What does it mean to hold hands? How do you ask for those? You should ask every single time, you know, things like that. Um, you know, if you, when they're older, talking about sex, you know, what what does sex mean to you versus what does it mean to somebody else, right? Having that conversation that your experiences may be different from someone else's and having that um, conversation with like, okay, well, you see, you know, asking consent is a way to make sure that you're all on the same page and like talking about it in that sense, right? So you can, you can definitely do and talk about consent in a very developmental way, um, but it's very important to start as early as you can because we see in our groups that when we talk to middle schoolers, um, sometimes, mo like I would say probably most of them on on average haven't had these conversations before and and that's kind of a shame that it's it's so late in the game um not to say that it's it's good that they're getting it now but they should definitely have been having it way earlier on because then you know they um they appear much healthier. They, you know, they have a, their own sense of identity. They know that they're in control of their body, um, which is really important. So, and you had mentioned, uh, body autonomy. Can, can parents help kids develop that? Yes, of course. Um, one of like the biggest, and it's very simple as well. It's very easy to remember a phrase that we use a lot is that it's my body, my choice. It's very easy. Like you can just teach that to a little kid and you know, they'll get that because you know, each individual person can decide what they do with their body, uh, what other people do with their body, when and how. Um, and so even though, like I said, like maybe as a parent, you have a really hard day and you just really want to like give your kid a hug, asking that first, you know, that can be, even though like inside you can feel like, okay, well, I really need a hug, but if they don't want one, um, that's their choice, right? Cause it's their body. And that's a really good way to kind of build that up is, you know, just repeating the phrase that it's your body, your choice. Right. And so, and I think that teaching bodily autonomy to a child and having it be that like ongoing conversation throughout their life, you know, always being asked before they can be touched and things like that, um, is a really important way for them to learn consent themselves. Because if they're growing up and they are learning that, oh, my body is respected and people are going to ask me before I touch it, things like that. I think it's really easy then for that kid to be able to like turn the tables and view other people's personal space. Um, and body as their own thing. Um, so just teaching consent sort of like on that side and making sure that they um, are always being asked for consent, I think is a good way to teach them to then ask for consent themselves later. Yeah, it, it definitely builds up that empathy for other people's bodily autonomy as well. So, Right, yeah, and I think uh, that... That struck me for some reason, like, and I guess it's not earth shattering, right? But we're not just talking about teaching consent, like you need to ask for consent. It's really about kind of like creating ownership of your own body or, and understanding your limits. And so it's really more about kind of your own awareness 
of your, your physical being. Yeah. I mean, consent is a two way street always. It's always, it's both people like checking in with each other. So if you like have that one side that you're understanding that I need to be checked in with before I am touched, like hopefully it's going to build that, that understanding that like I also need to ask. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not just the conversation. Like we're not just going in and teaching kids throughout their life being like, always ask before you can touch someone else. Always that like, that's, you know, also important, but it definitely is like both sides of that consent piece that we want to teach. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see just kind of just even just that sort of in itself builds this idea of consent because they have such an understanding of their own like respect for themselves, which then would lead to respect for somebody else. Yeah. And then uh, the last point I want to bring about the bodily autonomy is that it's also really important when you have these conversations and you teach it is not to make the child feel shameful for making that choice to say no to someone, right? So no one should ever feel selfish. No one should ever feel bad or guilty for saying no. Cause it's like we said, like that's their choice and they should feel comfortable doing that. Right. So keeping that in mind that, yeah, maybe it, like you really need a hug, um, but understanding that like they, they should have the right to say no. So keeping right. that in mind. Right. I, uh, I can totally picture that in my head. Like, I really need a hug. No. Well, what do you mean? You know, like that, that, that is part of it. You, as a parent, you have to be willing to teach it and you have to be willing to respect it. Right. Absolutely. And I think I'll just one more like addition having this conversation, I could feel that there would be people who would think that this is really like unnatural, really, really weird to like ask for, you know, like uh, ask for a hug, ask for a high five, but it's so important. I don't know. And I think that us feeling like, Oh, that's a really unnatural thing to do just goes to show like how much this conversation is needed in our society and in our culture, because we have this idea that it's like just okay to go up to people and like touch them. And even if it's, you know, not an intimidating sort of touch, but like, it's obviously a conversation we need to have if we're feeling like it's really sort of awkward or strange to ask someone if we can touch them. Absolutely. I I kind of feel like that too, with that, like being willing to talk to kids about their bodies and sex. Like if it's that awkward, it's probably something you should be talking about (laughs) because it means they might be feeling that way too and need to feel supported. As a parent, I feel like that's happened so much to me. I feel like, oh God, if I'm feeling uncomfortable, this is probably a really important thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so Let's talk, I guess I kind of segued myself. So what is, what's normal and healthy sexual development of children just a little bit um, versus what might be a red flag? Yeah. So um, the first thing that we kind of want to remember is that as human beings, we are um, very naturally just kind of sexual and just in nature, right? I mean, there are some people who identify as asexual or aromantic, um, but overall as like a population, you can assume that, um, people are going to be curious about their bodies and other people's bodies. Right. Um, and so oftentimes we see, especially, um, people get shocked when they see maybe like their two year old to like four roughly, you know, they're, they're looking at themselves, like their private body parts, whether it's their penis or their vagina and they're touching themselves, they're exploring kind of things like that because they're, they're cognitive at that age of of themselves, right? They're like, okay, well, I'm a being that exists. What, what's on my body? What am I? Things like that. Right. Um, and that's very healthy. Some people think that, you know, that is a sign of like abuse, but not necessarily all the time. Right. It's just very natural for kiddos to be curious. Um, and then same, you know, as they grow older, 
and they realize that, okay, I'm my own being, but then like, um, someone else is also their own being. What are they like? What does their body look like? It's very normal for kids to be curious in that sense and be like, like we've heard stories of kiddos, um, at like school, running off to like a corner of like maybe like a group of boys and they, you know, they compare themselves or looking at each other's penises, you know, things like that. And in that sense that that would be consensual, like they, they're agreeing to do that, uh, which, and that's, that's a very like, in that sense, it's healthy, right? Obviously like if it's unconsensual, that, that would be like sexual assault. And there are certain laws with like kiddos, like whether or not it's um, even any such, any sexual activity, whether it's consent or not, it's still against the law. Um, but that would still be considered a healthy thing if it's done consensually because they're curious about each other's bodies, right? It's not anything that, you know, they should ever be, like, shamed about because um, we, we've heard also stories where in those scenarios where kiddos are, like, exploring each other's bodies and just kind of, like, look, you know, this is what you have, this is what I have, um, people will be like, okay, well, that's, you know, don't ever do that, don't do that. Um, and that can bring a lot of, like, shame and kind of, like, repress their their natural, healthy kind of sexual um, development, right? Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, important. I think that that moment, if we're talking about that scenario, it's a good um, opportunity to talk about, you know, public versus private spaces and be like, okay, well, so we don't pull our pants down when we are at school or at recess on the playground. Um, but and, and encouraging them, like, it's okay to be curious, you know, it's, it's okay, that's your body, but those are things that we do in private. Um, so again, the, like, not shaming them, but still, you know, you're allowed to parent or to be a school teacher and to have that conversation and say, this isn't something that we do at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And, and it's very normal, again, for kiddos to be curious and ask questions, right? And so making sure that we reframe our own, you know, own biases that we might have and and being very honest and open um, about, you know, their questions and answering them to the best of our abilities. And and even if we don't necessarily know the answer, being like, okay, well, hold off and I'll I'll get get back to you, right? Because we don't want to give them any of the wrong information because they may use that later on and it might hurt them developmentally, right? Um, and then so going into like some red flag areas, um, can kind of look like a lot of different things. Like, um, let's see, for example, um, sometimes if a kiddo, like if a kid, um, sexually abuses another kiddo, that might be like, obviously that's a red sign. Cause like, that's something we don't want, but sometimes people kind of look at that kid who's the like the perpetrator and you know when kids are six in that kind of developmental stage they're not doing it on they're not doing it for like the power and control um they're doing it more possibly for you know they've experienced that or they've seen things like that um and they're just trying to make sense of what happened to them um by doing it to someone else um and there's no like necessarily like ill and ill intent with that but it's just to kind of like make sense so that might be a red flag or if they're doing that kind of stuff to like dolls or things like that where it's they're they're having some sort of like um behavioral changes that's that's very simple like i can't believe i forgot that um you know that's that's kind of out of the ordinary like they're they're playing with their toys a little differently or they're having like toys touch each other in those kind of places can be kind of a sign um also um some kind of just to kind of keep a lookout is when we talk about and why it's important to talk about like body parts like you know using the words vagina or penis we've heard situations where people who are uncomfortable parents have taught maybe their kids to call like um in one scenario a girl her vagina they would call it a cookie and so in one scenario um this girl came said that dad touched my cookie 
and people, you know, didn't take them very seriously because you're like, okay, well, um, I'm sorry, I guess that they touched your cookie because you think of, of it like the, you know, the big pastry, right? But they're actually talking about their vagina and how they've been sexually abused, right? And so even though um, kiddos may come up with those kind of, or they may like beat around the bush sometimes, or they're because they, you know, kids are, are kids, they don't fully understand necessarily what happened to them. They may ask kind of like weird questions that may not seem like red flags necessarily, like, to like the untrained eye. Uh, but you know, if it's kind of like, you know, off putting in any sense, like trust your gut, you know, kind of deal. And, you know, feel free to ask those questions. Like, okay, well, what do you mean by like a cookie? What do you, what does that mean to you? You know, things like that. Um, that's a very good way to kind of address whether or not there really is a red flag. Yeah. And I'll also say that with those sort of normal and healthy sexual behaviors of like kids exploring their own private body parts, whether touching them, looking at them or, you know, comparing theirs to others, um, like Brett said, that's all like can be very considered normal and healthy. Um, but as a parent, um, like redirecting that behavior and saying like, oh, those are things we do in private, like it's OK in that non shameful way. If those behaviors continue um, like in the public space, then that would also be a red flag. Like if the redirection is something that is like constantly needed um, and, and it's not a behavior that there's that they're stopping but like typically in that healthy sexual way um, that redirection would work um, but if it's continues to persist that's also um, maybe something that would be considered a red flag if it doesn't stop um, let's talk a little bit about we talked about the media before um, in the last episode, we were talking about just understanding assault and harassment and consent. Um, but but let's talk about the media and consent specifically, especially kind of I'm imagining we had a conversation at the beginning about perpetrators and where kids are maybe learning some of that behavior. Like, I would love to know your thoughts on maybe male and female roles in the media or just media and consent. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so we, to sort of recap last time, just talked generally about like male and female stereotypical roles in the media and sort of identified, um, it's not, this isn't rocket size. I feel like most of us could figure this out, but like the male roles are typically like the dominant in charge. They're the pursuers of relationships. So sort of on that chase pursuing, not the pursued, like the females, um, they're supposed to be in control, really sort of obsessed with sex or like interested in the sexual conquest, um, while women are supposed to be sort of the opposite of that, submissive, less in charge, less interested in sex or withholding of that. Um, so those are sort of the general male-female stereotypes that we see. And we sort of talked about how when you look at those overall, we can sort of see this rape culture existing where guys are supposed to be like going after it and girls are supposed to be like running away and we create that chase, which we see as like this like very very normal, I think, like game. But actually, if you look at it through that, like rape culture lens can be so harmful if what we're teaching people is like that guys have to go after and chase and the girls have to say like, no, like that's not OK. Um, everyone should be saying yes <laughs> if they want to, of course. Um, but I think something that we can talk very specifically about um, 
in relating it to consent is how those stereotypical roles sort of translate over into behaviors that we see in the media. Um, and one in particular that we sort of were discussing as, as we were talking about preparing for this podcast conversation is um, the behavior that we see probably in a lot of romantic comedies um, going all the way back to like black and white films um, is like the, the guy sort of like grabbing the girl by the arm or grabbing around her waist and just like kissing her like this like passion fiery kiss um and we see that like over and over and over again like i said all the way back to those black and white movies to like movies um that have come out more recently um and i think that there's a huge problem with that because it's seen as this like very positive romantic sexy um thing but actually it's like someone literally just grabbing them and kissing them. Um, and, and that is not what we want to see when we're talking about consent. Um, sometimes in those like movie scenes, we also see with that an additional layer of like the woman sort of like struggling or fighting for a little while. I don't know if we could like picture this in our mind, but the guy kisses her. She sort of is like, no, don't. But then she gives in and she goes limp in his arms and then, the romantic music plays. Yeah, I think that we can all think of those scenarios because we've seen them so often. Um, and yeah, that's harmful because we, we think that that is not only just like acceptable and like normal and okay, but like I said, we see it as a positive thing. Guys should be doing this, right? And women should be wanting this. Um, but if that happened in reality, like how often... Would we want to be just like, you know, um, so I don't know. That's one example that I can think of that relates pretty specifically to consent. Yeah. And, um, on the flip side as well, um, to kind of like see what Hannah said is that, um, we also see in the media, like when guys are the ones who are, are there and then the women initiate that kiss first without asking for consent, it's supposed to be like, oh, they like, you know, guys aren't allowed to say like, no, I didn't want that. Right. Cause it's, you know, the stereotypes that we have in our media guys are always, you know, out looking for, looking, looking for sex, looking for, um, uh, any sort of like romanticism, things like that. And so they, there's no like chance for men to say no either, because there's that stereotype that men are always supposed to like want that. Right. Um, we also see in our media, especially, um, I've seen it. I don't know if you have, but in TV shows, I've seen a lot of sitcoms, I guess, um, where if a guy is interested in a romantic partner, um, uh, specifically probably leaning towards more, if that's a woman, um, they say things like, okay, well, how do I initiate, you know, asking her out or, or kissing her? How do, how do I have that like first kiss or things like that? And they're having like a conversation with their guy friends. A lot of times the guy friends are just like, you just got to lean in and go for it. You know, don't ask her. That's going to like, you know, that's going to ruin the mood. And we often see in our media and it perpetuate perpetuates this in, in real life is that asking for consent is, is unsexy or it's a big turnoff, right? Which is super far from the case because, um, what we like to think of it is that, you know, if someone is uncomfortable and, you know, consent isn't asked, that's what really ruins, ruins the mood. Right. And so making sure that everyone is comfortable, um, is a great way to, to improve the mood and things like that. Right. And that's something we just don't see in the media. It's oftentimes like, Oh, especially like guys telling other guys, like, no, you gotta just go for it. Like, or if, or if you're not, then you're not a man, you're, you're weak and you're, 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 you need to toughen up, you know, things like that. Right. And it just perpetuates that for men. Anything else to say about that? Like 
specifically kind of like what the media is or isn't saying about consent? I think that a lot of the times the media just, and I think it's gotten better and there are probably some examples of like positive conversations about consent, but I think that largely it's just a complete lack of like conversation about consent. So when we talk about consent in real life, like envisioning that in our, I guess like in, in our experiences with people, it's just because I think a lot of the times we get ideas about how those experiences should go from TV shows and movies. It's just not something that is like that normal sort of thought like we were talking about earlier it feels like such a different alternative like awkward sort of way of like kissing someone or something because I feel like it's just typically a lack in our media it's just like Brett said people just getting into a room and there's suddenly they're all on the same page and there's no conversation about what they want to do what they don't want to do um yeah. Or, you know, a guy grabbing a girl typically or a girl just kissing a guy. Yeah. It's just, I feel like not present. Right. Really. Yeah. Right. How, how can parents address that if it's not present, right? Like how do parents talk to kids about what they see versus reality? Yeah. So, um, the first kind of bit is that, um, we have to understand that as like, parents maybe we can't necessarily always control what our kids are seeing all the time but having an idea at least at least like what they're looking at as, as much as you can obviously because if you know what they're they're watching for the most part you can at least be like okay well if they're watching this then I'll have a conversation without about that later so that that kind of helps but then also um, if you know you're watching TV with your kids and I know when I was growing up and I would watch you know TV with my parents you know there would eventually be that awkward sex scene that comes on and and things like that but then using that as a way to talk to your kids about about consent right so you you know maybe pausing during the the sex scene or maybe if you're more comfortable afterwards saying like okay well did they ask for consent in that moment right did, or if they did what did they say is that a good way to ask for consent or how like what's a way we could talk about it better and using the the, the way that they're watching this media and, and things like that as, as an example of like okay well this is something we shouldn't be doing what can we do instead is a really good way to use the media as a as a, um, a teaching tool instead of the media actually being the second teacher right so mm-hmm and being cognizant probably as a parent about what that media is saying. I mean, just having that in your mind, right? Like, Oh wait, I need to talk about it. Yeah. I think that that's like a, a, it's not just that we have to teach our children about consent, but like, since this is a conversation that we're talking about is, is very new in our culture in general, like first educating ourselves also, because I feel like a lot of this information um, is stuff that people our age adults are learning. Um, so educating yourself first and foremost, and then, yeah, taking those opportunities to talk to your kids and, and ask those questions. Like, did they ask for consent? Do you think in real life, all people are on the same page a hundred percent of the time, just sort of those questions to get their minds turning about how like, Oh, this isn't really, this is not reality. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, I, this is something I've been thinking about and I was, I didn't know whether or not I should say it. Uh, because I, when I hear you guys talk too, I can have those questions. Like I under, I can hear the doubt that people are thinking, right. And you're saying like, Oh, you know, like it, men are just supposed to grab women and kiss them. And, and I feel like I, I feel like I have had experiences in my life where that has happened to me much earlier. 
because I'm married, happily married. Uh, but, but like where you would be, I would want that. Right. Right. Like, Oh, I hope he kisses me. Right. Or, but also having times after a date that I didn't enjoy thinking, Oh my God, I hope he doesn't kiss me. Mm. Right. And so, so what I was just kind of thinking about when you were talking is, um, those times when I didn't want it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that there wasn't really ever consent asked. And so I think that that, that is the, something that maybe people need to keep in mind is that, that when you, when we're talking about this idea that somehow consent might be ruining the mood, we're talking about, about the mood of two people who are probably willing to say yes. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's this other time where it, somebody isn't willing and if, and you don't know until you ask consent. I don't know. It was just something that I was thinking about. Like, like I, I, I can hear that doubt of listeners or whomever, but that, that what we're respecting is people who are not there, you know, and, and it takes asking to, to know. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, I think that there are maybe sort of what you're getting at is like, there are moments when maybe like two people are on the same page. Maybe you have a great date and you're like, God, I hope they kiss me after this. Right. And then if that happened, that could be like a consensual, I want this to happen thing, but we can't walk around in the world, like teaching everyone that like, we can always expect that that will be the case. Yeah. Right. Because there yeah, that's not always going to happen. So we can't be like teaching ourselves and then teaching our kids that like we can go around just like grabbing people and kissing them after the date, assuming that we're all going to be like, okay with that and on the same page, because that probably the times that that is the case is, is less frequent than the time where like mm, both people aren't on the same page. Yeah. Um, what about, are there any specific programs that Saba uses to teach kids? Um, yeah, so Brett and I work um, pretty explicitly with our Speak Up program, um, which is where we, we focus mainly on eighth graders uh, going into middle schools. And we it's typically a year round program um, where we talk about all different kinds of things about one hour a week um, in different middle schools with different groups. Um, and consent is one of the topics that we do talk about, um, along with sexual harassment and sexual assault. A lot of the information that I shared in the previous episode um, but yeah, that's, that's sort of like how we have those conversations, um, at Sava, like specifically with kids, but like, uh, Brett sort of alluded to earlier, uh, you know, it's better than nothing, but what we're hoping is like, ideally that talking about consent with these eighth graders is honestly just like review because these conversations should be happening sooner. It shouldn't be the first time that an eighth grader is hearing something about consent or about bodily autonomy. We want those to be conversations that occur far sooner than eighth grade because before eighth grade, you know, kids are definitely interested in relationships and have friendships and, um, are exploring like physical touch. So, um, it's important. That's what, like, it's important for parents to also do that. Sava, like we can't do all of the work there. Um, and then we also have our, our super world program where we work with like younger kids. Um, and we have conversations more about like boundaries and bodily autonomy, safe versus unsafe touching. So a little bit more age appropriate. Um, and we certainly talk about boundaries and speak up as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are sort of the two programs that we focus on specifically, but, uh, the conversation, like I said, needs to be larger than just those because we're not reaching every kid and it needs to occur outside of those programs too. 
And speaking about a larger conversation, how can the community also be involved? Yeah, so um, currently right now, it is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, um, especially when this podcast comes out, it's going to be a couple weeks or like a weekend. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in participating in anything, Sava Center is doing a ton of different um events that we're doing throughout the month. We have a calendar on our website. Um, we have a big event at the end of the month called Strides for Survivors, which is a, a kind of walk-a-thon concert, food, drinks, um, thing in a statue park down in Loveland, Colorado, um, which is really fun. If you're interested, we're also doing a pledge, drive, a pledge drive for that. So it's like, okay, well, I'm gonna give $5 and I'm pledging to um, end sexual violence um, by doing this X, Y, Z, things like that. Um, and then, you know, what Hannah was saying is it's, it's also more like having a conversation right um, when you see things out on like the street or if you see things that are kind of like iffy you know being an upstander instead of just kind of seeing there it's just like standing there and you know being quiet and, you know oh it's not my business or things like that being more like okay well that's kind of weird I'll just kind of ask you know maybe like what's going on um, making sure that everybody is like okay maybe possibly um, and having those conversations with our kids right and having um Another program that we do as well that Hannah and I aren't necessarily super involved in is our SART program, uh, which is the Sexual Assault Resource Team, which is where we actually train high schoolers to come in and teach other high schoolers or middle schoolers. So that's like that peer teaching, mm -hmm. which is very valuable. And having, you know, necessarily kiddos aren't always going to be super receptive to just like some adults coming in all the time and be like, this is what you need to do, things like that. But having people that as a community we can trust that are having those conversations with us, whether it's, you know, Know, always super comfortable or not kind of like still trying to have those it can be um you know very um important to you know ending and interrupting sexual violence in our society because if we have an open conversation about it within our communities um it's perpetrators can't get away with it and so they more more likely than not aren't going to do it in the first place so yeah awesome we'll get and i can um link to those activities and some of those things that you mentioned. Um, any other resources for parents on this topic? Yeah. So I have some resources and we'll give those out to you as well. Um, obviously Sava Center, we're always like a great resource, especially when it comes to like sexual health, especially when it comes to consent, healthy relationships, things like that. Um, there's a really cool text line called in case you're curious, um, where if you text, um, ICYC to a specific number, which is five, seven, eight, nine, zero, um, you know, you can give that to your kid or you can use it yourself where you ask like, you know, sexually developmental questions like what is, you know, sexual health and like what, what, what is, what is birth control? What is this? All those kind of different things re regarding sexual health. They'll answer them factually, um, correctly, things like that, that you, you know, maybe if you're, you know, cause we understand that maybe like kiddos aren't maybe comfortable always going to parents or something like that. So having that resource, like, you know, if they don't come to you, at least they're not getting their information from a stranger on the internet. You know, at least they're getting their, their factual information that they need. There's another text line called love is where if you text just in one word, love is to two, two, five, two, two, um, kiddos can ask like, well, is this a healthy relationship? What does this mean? If someone does this, is this consensual? Things like that, um, can be very useful resource. There's obviously, Obviously, um, Crossroad Safe House. There's a real cool app called Safe to Tell um, that kiddos can always utilize where they can say if something's happening to them or someone that they know. Um, 
that they can pass that along um, anonymously, like this information, and then that the safe to tell safe to tell app will tell you know alert authorities or you know whoever needs to know that this is happening, and they'll they'll do their best to correct whatever is happening to kind of help that kiddo out. Um, there's also um, Voices Carry, which is a really good resource for parents, especially um, they do a lot with like talking to parents about what is. Um, a healthy sexual development for a child, which is what it maybe is a red sign. They're very good at that. Um, there's child safe and, and reality for children, which are very like good for, um, again, the sexual health, but also kiddos maybe who do have those red signs, uh, or red flags that, you know, okay, well they'll go to this to get maybe talk about it more and have those conversations. Like, okay, well, what do you mean by like this? Or, um, how can we help you now that you've experienced this kind of problem? Right. So Great. Thank you. I had never heard of some of those before. The text lines, that seems like a very modern way to get information (laughs) and also very easy for children to utilize. So that's great information. Thank you guys very much for being here today. This is awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was good to see you again. That's it. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode and a huge thank you to the Sava Center for all of their great information. You can find the contact details for the Sava Center as well as the show notes on www.boysbuiltbetter.com. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the show and leave us a review that helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.